Welcome to the third episode of Think Twice. My name is Nicolas Krischi and today we are going to talk about disguising your hand. Before we jump into this topic, I just wanted to mention that I wanted to make this podcast about looting and milling. The guys from Limited Resources actually inspired me to that. I thought milling is not always neutral, but it turns out it actually is. That's also why this podcast is this week and not last. So heads up to the guys from Limited Resources and you should really listen to their podcast. Okay, now let's jump into our topic. Before we can talk about the pros and cons of disguising your hand, you probably should know what disguising your hand actually means. Disguising your hand means that you make a play that differs from game theory or differs from the expectations of your opponent. This way your opponent can't read you as well as he might do when you would make the normal play. But why is it so important that our opponent can't read you? Well, since our goal is to make our opponent play wrong, it's really important that our opponent doesn't know what cards we have on our hand all of the time. Because if he knew, he would always make the most optimal play. What I'm going to do now is to use different examples of pros disguising their hand to great success. First off, I want to start with the semi-finals of Pro Tour Los Angeles in 2005, where Kenji Tomoro and Antoine Well played. Both players were playing a Sayatok deck and Kenji Tomoro was on the play. Okay. The first turn of Antoine Buell was a tapped watery grave, although he had a force spike in his hand. This was his first attempt to disguise his hand. Okay, on the second turn, Antoine played an island and then played a Doris on Kenji Sumoro, at which point Kenji Mana leaked it, I think, or another counter spell. Antoine Buell still denied using his force spike on the Counterspell. On Kenji Sumoro's third turn, Kenji tried to make a fire talk, at which point Antoine Ruel finally used his force spike. If we look at this example, it becomes clearly that by disguising his hand and not playing force spike, he gained huge value out of his force spike, which he normally wouldn't have. You see, although I think in most cases it's probably right to use force spike as soon as possible, sometimes it's right to wait, or at least even if it's not right, it may give you more value. Because if you always counter the first part of the force spike, your opponent always knows if you have a force spike or not. Okay, let's back up my claim with some math. Okay, let's say in 10 out of 10 times you're always using force spike on the first spell. At which point your opponent always plays correctly after you resolve force spike. Now let's mix it a little bit up. Let's say in 9 out of 10 times you're always using force spike first and in one time you're using it on the second possible spell. Okay, let's see what happens. Your opponent now is still never playing around force spike after the first spell where he tapped out. Okay. Now, since you're usually using it on the first spell, this behavior is right. 
But the one time you're keeping your boss bike in hand, he's actually wrong and may get his really powerful threat, or a more powerful threat at least, countered by force bike. So the rules we make for ourselves to always do one thing and not do another thing are actually quite bad for us because our opponent then knows if we have this kind of card in hand or not. Another structural example would be always bolting the birds, or the mana guy, let's say. If we are always bolting the birds, our opponent knows if we have a lightning bolt on hand or not. If we mix up our play, he might walk into our trap and we gain huge value out of it, let's say by bolting a lotus cobra. But we gain more value out of playing differently. Our opponent might mess up after we didn't bolt the birds, because he might then play around a lightning bolt although we didn't kill his birds, which means he's playing wrong. You see, by you getting harder to read, your opponent might make misplays and you might gain value out of it anyway. But you should always think about what are you losing by playing incorrectly and what are you gaining if your trap actually works. You might ask yourself, how often should you try to trap your opponent now? I will now do an oversimplification that you understand when it is correct to trap your opponent and when not. For this I will use a different example, also quite well known, I think. Some players might not play their fourth land in a deck with Day of Judgment and rather discard to make your opponent think you're screwed and to make him overcommit to the board to play the Day of Judgment a turn later for a big blowout. Let's say when you are stuck on three lands, the odds of you winning the game decrease by 10%. But if your opponent plays around Day of Judgment when you are stuck on three lands, your odds increase by let's say also 10%. Also, in 10% of the time, you are actually stuck on three lands. I use these percentages just to make us clear what's actually going on and when it's correct to trap our opponent and when not. It doesn't matter that these percentages are probably way off. Okay, let's say our opponent is always playing around Day of Judgment when we are seen to be stuck on three lands. Now, in 10 out of 11 times, we are actually gaining 10%, because we are really stuck on three lands. In 1 out of 11 times, his play is correct. Now, let's say our opponent is never playing around Day of Judgment when we are seen to be stuck on three lands. This means in 1 out of 11 times we are just blowing our opponent out. Now, let's say the hand you have turn for a day of judgment usually wins, let's say, 80% of the time. And the hand where you slow roll your day of judgment, you are actually winning 100% of the time. And you are also having a turn for a day of judgment in 10% of the time. Since you are not playing your land, 1 out of 10 times, you are gaining 20% in the one game you slow rolled your Day of Judgment. Now you see, no matter how your opponent plays, 
you're always gaining a little bit by slow rolling your Day of Judgment sometimes. He either is always playing around Day of Judgment or he's never playing around Day of Judgment. No matter what he does, he's always losing a little bit. In one case, he's losing 10% every game. In the other case, in 10% of the time, he is certainly losing. This does obviously only work if your opponent can't tell if you have three or four lands in your draw. You can randomize your plays to avoid being red, but I will cover this in a later episode. Okay, let's put this into general terms. Okay, the more we gain by trapping our opponent, the more often we should trap our opponent. If we are gaining just a little, we should still trap our opponent some of the time. If we are gaining a lot, we should, should trap our opponent more often. I am on purpose not using any percentages, because we don't really know the percentages in Magic, so it doesn't really matter. Of course, if our opponent is always playing around our card, let's say Day of Judgment, even when we are stuck on three lands, it doesn't make any sense to try to trap him. I will shortly repeat the traps we learned about today. We learned that when we are not playing a land, our opponent may not play around the card we have at a higher casting cost. We also learned that by not playing certain cards at, a, at the right moment, our opponent is also not playing around them. Okay, that should finish this segment. There's another way to disguise your hand, which is bluffing. I will go shortly into this, but it's pretty similar to trapping your opponent. Bluffing in magic is not easy to do, but there are some ways. A pretty well-known way is to attack with a creature into an opponent's creature that is bigger. This usually happens in limited to bluff, let's say, a giant growth. But when should you try to bluff a giant growth? The best way to bluff a giant growth is when your opponent really doesn't want to lose his creature. At this point, he's a lot less likely to block than before. This means the more powerful your opponent's creature is, the more you should be likely to bluff the giant growth. Obviously, this changes again if your opponent is always blocking. Also, it's a lot better to try to bluff a giant growth if your opponent is tapped out. Because if he's not tapped out, he's likely, or he has at least a chance, to have a removal spell or some other resistance against the giant growth, at which point he's certainly blocking. Another way to bluff is when your opponent knows parts. For example, this works pretty good with the lower wind block tribal lands, because you have to actually reveal a card. If you are reveling a card you could play, but not playing it, then your opponent might probably think that you actually have a counter spell. It seems like a big tell, and he's most likely to play around that counter spell. This kind of bluff works the best if you are actually ahead on the board. Let's say you were playing Merfolk and it's your fourth turn and you were revealing a Merfolk Souverain. At this point, if you're not playing the Merfolk Souverain, your opponent is more likely to play around a counter spell 
if he has, let's say, a day of judgment. This will gain you a little bit and it will help you not overextend. The same kind of bluff can be done just by not playing anything, even if your opponent doesn't know you have something on hand, but it's a lot less stronger than the bluff I just told you. I think that should do it for today. There are more bluffs and traps you can set. If you have any of them, please tell them in the comments on MTGCast or Magic League. I appreciate all of the comments. Well then, until next time, goodbye.